0: Good evening and welcome to episode 89, episode 89 of the Political Mike podcast. After 511 days and numerous bombshell testimonies, it has all led up to this moment. The January 6th Select Committee held its final public meeting this past Monday afternoon and released the first components of its final report. The January 6th Committee on Monday voted to formally accuse former President Donald Trump of four crimes, including assisting in an in insurrection in his bid to subvert the transfer of presidential power to Joe Biden. The Supreme Court has put in place an order that could block a pandemic era border policy from ending this Wednesday, halting the much anticipated drawdown of a federal policy, Title 42, that has prevented millions of migrants from crossing the Southern border into the United States. The 1.7 trillion government funding measure is the last major must pass bill on the legislative docket for the 117th Congress. However, with a divided government and a looming 2024 presidential election, this is making legislation even harder to, to, uh, in this climate. The spending bill has become a magnet for members trying to cram in their priorities just before the holiday season. And the United States Attorney, uh, Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York announced last week that Bahamian authorities arrested the former crypto exchange executive sam friedman uh sam uh, freed at the request of the u.s federal prosecutors and regulators on, uh, and they unveiled a sweeping set of charges tuesday morning including fraud money laundering and campaign finance violations here to help me make sense of all of this are uh, four, uh very accomplished men i'm so great, grateful to have their time uh, this evening we have professor preston foster who is the founding president and ceo of what they should say.org uh, he is also the assistant professor and program director of public policy at Oakland University. He's also a regular panelist at WJOU's monthly issues and policy radio program. He is the former chief marketing officer for educational testing services. He's also a former White House fellow serving in the Clinton administration. Um, and he also served as the U.S. deputy assistant secretary of education in the Clinton administration. Professor Foster, thanks so much for being a part of the Mic today. Oh, it's
1: good to be with you, Michael.
0: We also have with us... Uh, Mr. Uh, Richard Friesen, who works with professionals and business leaders who want to increase their personal effectiveness with joy and grace, Uh, his neuroscience based mind muscles model gives his clients the opportunity to reach their goals with online training, simulations, interactive exercises, group support, the real time decision processes, and he has been a futures broker for Merrill Lynch, a floor trader on the CME, C B O T and the options floor for the uh, of the Pacific Exchange, where he built and sold a successful options trading firm, where he has served on the ex- Exchanges Board of Directors. Uh, Mr. Freed, uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Richard uh, Freedson, thank you so much for being a part of the program today.
2: I am so honored to be here among the distinguished guests, and so I'm just really excited about a creative conversation.
0: Awesome. We also have with us a, a first-time guest so I'm excited to have, uh, Mr. Um, Ken Good, uh, who is an attorney in Texas. Uh, Mr. Good, thank you so much for being a part of this uh, this uh, program tonight. I want to go ahead and introduce you at this moment. Uh, Mr. Ken Good, of course, um, has been practicing for a, a number of years. Um, and he is also someone who is well-versed in terms of public policy and, and where they intersect with legislation and the law. Mr. Good. thank you so much for being a part of the political mic.
3: Well, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm impressed with your other guests, so I'm wondering what I'm doing here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I also want to add, uh, Mr. Good is also a noted bail attorney and a board member of the Professional Bondsmen of Texas. Um, he has worked closely with lawmakers and other individuals on bail matters. Um, His perspective is one in which uh, he offers rich insight on the impact that the rise in crime may or may not have played in the uh, recent election. And he also provides insight on the the criminal justice uh, laws introduced uh, over the past few years. Um, So I'm looking forward to having his insight today. We also have uh, Dr. Oliver Davis, who's no stranger to the local mic. He has served 12 years, three consecutive terms on the South Bend, uh, Indiana Common City Council. Uh, after being first elected in 2007, uh, Councilman Davis uh, has worked hard to represent the people of South Bend, Indiana. Um, he he also ran uh, to become the nominee of the. Uh, forgive me if, uh, he also ran for a position in, in, in South Bend in 2020. He was the Democratic nominee for the position of. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Doctor Davis, but you were the nominee for um, city councilman or or congressional Dec- just,
4: uh, commissioner race in 2020
0: sorry commissioner uh he is someone who brings a lot of breadth and insight uh into political matters on the ground in a state like indiana and i'm so grateful to have his insight today so gentlemen i'd, I'd want to start the discussion by talking about uh the january 6th committee being that that's the, the main thing on the forefront of you know any political mind currently uh the january 6 select committee uh this past monday voted to formally accuse former president donald trump of four crimes and that includes assisting an in insurrection in his bid to subvert the transfer of presidential power. Uh, the panel has long contended Trump broke the law, but its new report, which the committee voted to release, uh, but has yet to become public, is expected to add vivid new details to this report to this effort, particularly um, about the cast of enablers who facilitated Trump's gamble from Republican members of Congress to a team of lawyers uh, pushing fringe legal theories to shadowy operatives uh, in conspiracies. Now, of course, th- You know, it's up to the DOJ, the the Department of Justice, to act upon uh, whatever the the committee has recommended. Um, What is the likelihood, in your view, of that happening? And what is the potential consequence of the vivid details uh, being released to the public? And anyone?
4: (laughs) I think um, it should be hopefully by tomorrow and maybe even um, before Friday. The public will know the majority of it. I think the January 6th committee um, truly did a great job and did better than most people even expected them to do in terms of how they marketed the presentations, how they presented it, how they utilized um, about over 80% or 90% of the witnesses were Republicans. I thought that was very important um, for them to be able to do that, to have um, Kissinger and um, Congresswoman uh, Cheney, both of those Republicans on the um, panel, I think really helped to bring um, some um, bipartisan issues with it. And so with the nature of how it's being presented, I think the amount of public pressure that is now there is gonna be put on the DOJ to be able to do something. Um, the election did not turn out as great as the Republicans have thought. And so the Repu- Democrats, has, though they will not be in power and the committee will be um, disbanded in. January, they still will have a lot more power than a lot of people had ever expected them to have, and they still have the Senate. So I do believe that a lot of those charges, and uh, especially against former President Trump and um, some of the others will proceed. Yes.
1: (laughs) Strangely, I think that the uh, January 6th committee, who I also believe did a wonderful job, uh, may have done a... Uh, Favor for Governor DeSantis um, because I think one of the best things that I have a, uh, uh, a company that Michael referenced called What They Should Say. And the best thing that I heard politically to come out of the January 6th committee was from Liz Cheney, who basically said that every American president has presided over the peaceful transition of power except one, mm-hmm. and I think that's something every American uh, can digest honestly, uh, because that's true, and the ill effects of that was seen for everyone, and it was um, beyond frightening. Um, uh, the committee's referrals, um, as you noted, have no legal significance, and um, might even, uh, kind of tie the hands of the DOJ uh, politically. I know they say they're not political, but of course they are. Um, <laughs> in, in terms of what they actually charge President Trump with, if anything, um, because they they go to great lengths to look like they're not political and not acting on what politicians have referred to them. So I have confidence that... Um, Uh, President Trump will likely be charged as a special prosecutor, et cetera. But I don't think it will be because of what the January 6th committee did. What the January 6th committee did was explain to the American people the depths of the conspiracy to undermine the 2020 election.
3: I do come to a little bit of a different conclusion on that. I I think that uh, if you look at our history when you're uh, looking at criticizing or evaluating the conduct of a president. I'm thinking of Nixon. You have to be overly cautious and with the appearance that you're working together. And I think the, one of the failures on the January 6th committee was its optics at the very beginning and the makeup of the committee. And that has left it subject to a lot of attack. And uh, I think with a a large segment of uh, the public, I think those attacks have grown roots. And so you see a lot of the conclusions about the January 6th uh, coming from what is your political background. And I think that always does our country a disservice when that happens. And I think that's happened here. We've had previous referrals before uh, where the DOJ has declined to do anything. I fully expect them to not do that here, that they will take action. And I think that'll reinforce to a certain large public uh, segment of our public that it is again politics and uh, making a large uh, impact on these decisions, whether it is or not and uh, that I think there is a big perception there.
2: As a therapist, I look at, uh, to see what is the impact of these things psychologically. And living in San Jose, California, of course, most of my friends are progressives out here, simply because that's the way they are. And I also have conservative friends. And there's two very different movies playing. And as a result, so we to, to live in one movie and not really appreciate the impact on the other movie, uh, I think we're, we're in for some surprises. Because if we look at it from... A conservative or libertarian point of view, the reaction is very emotional and very visceral around feeling that justice is not being done. If I step into my progressive friends and go to a party with all progressives, oh my gosh, you know evil has been is being taken care of, uh, Trump is being taken out, and boy, we can all breathe a sigh of relief. But these are two very different movies and we need to understand the impact of this and the possible ramifications.
1: And I agree with all of that. Um, I think the the incremental benefit of the January 6th committee was with those who are convincible. I think that's, that's what was manifested in the uh, November 2022 20, election, that there are those uh, moderate to moderately conservative Republicans who simply could not continue to back Trump-backed candidates, I believe in large part because of what the January 6th committee brought to their attention. So I I don't expect hardcore people on either side to be convinced by what the January 6th committee Mm -hmm. did. But those who are convincible, were given data that allows them to put into context what happened on on January sixth, and to decide if they want to, even with their conservative bona fides, if they want to relive both the uh, nightmare to democracy that we live, and if they just want to keep losing elections that they should be competitive.
0: <laughs> I agree. So what's also noteworthy about the committee um, and the work that they've done since July 27th of, of, of 2021, last year, is that most of the uh, accusations or testimonies uh, have been from folks within the Trump circle. You're talking about folks mm-hmm. who work in the White House, uh, folks who were uh, around the president or the vice president in the in, during those uh, chaotic hours of January the 6th. Um, and so I'm thinking about the fact that they, in addition to the fact that they've had Congressman Kinzinger, Liz Cheney, uh, two prominent Republicans, both of them leaving, not coming back for the 118th session of Congress. Liz Cheney, of course, was defeated. Kinzinger has retired. Um, the, any, any criticism that this committee has been politicized or anything, I'm wondering if that now has lost its wind in light of the fact that the testimonies have been, you know, some of the most. Uh, you know, damning evidence has come from um, some of you know folks who work with the the Trump administration, and and even among Cheney and Kinzinger, a lot of their criticism um, has added an echo with what has been said already in the course of these committee hearings, um, and of course a lot of the folks, the focus of the two Congress, uh, uh, you know members of Congress who are leaving, who are Republican on the committee, has been in terms of setting a precedent uh, for for the future. Um, You know, and and I think that was reflected in the overall statement, the conclusory statement of the committee, which is that if we let this go, this is gonna set a precedent for someone else to do something along the lines or something as chaotic as, you know, inspire insurrection. And we can't really say anything about it because we fail to take action today if, if that's the course we're gonna take.
4: What is your go ahead? I think um, I commend both of them, like I said in my opening statements, both Congresswoman Cheney and and Congressman um, Kissinger. The challenge that happened is um, really what um, Mr. Attorney Good was um, saying here is the composition. When you listen to former Vice President um, Pence, his argument is that the composition of the committee um, was not there, um, not fair, so therefore the outcome is not the best. Um, I can say that over 80 to 90 percent of the people who talked were Republicans, and I agree they were part of the Trump circle, and they shared those issues. I think given the nature of the political divide, the people who they were planning to put on, the Jim Jordans out of Ohio and a few others, um, would have taken this committee to another level, and I think that was the issue. And so I think that... Given the fact that they only had two, and both of them, uh, especially one, had already announced that he was going to retire, um, it was a um, pun, uh, um, imper- What do I would say? It was important that they had to have at least the majority of their people who were speaking had to come from the Republican Party because if they did not, with the composition, with what was, um, people like, um. Vice President Pence, even though his life was on the line on January the 6th, he still tries to say, well, yes, that was not there, but the composition, that's his biggest argument. So if you look into Fox News and more of those, that's their biggest argument, though, thing, is the composition. They don't want to even talk about so much the composition of those who were witnesses.
3: Well, it's hard to say that the Republicans did not believe the committee was partisan because, I mean, the Republicans... Uh, defeated Cheney in her primary by like 30 points. So I mean it's one thing to say that the part you know that the committee was perceived that way when I don't believe the that one spectrum or one uh, extreme of of our political spectrum would strongly disagree with that and they spoke in her primary if if I thought I think if what you were saying was true across the spectrum, then she wouldn't have been defeated so badly in her own primary. I mean, it wasn't in the general. It was in her primary that she got defeated. And I do think that that was a, a direct reaction to a perception on, on her party that she had uh, betrayed the party and not acted in a bipartisan way. What, Right or wrong, I, I think that that's what that uh, side of the political spectrum uh, concluded against her. And so I don't think so. When you say, you know, the January 6th committee did a great job and mostly was only Republican witnesses, that's I don't see that as the perception from uh, the right. And I don't, you know, I don't, I don't even think that the audience that the January 6th committee gan- gathered on TV would even support that.
4: I, I, think I, they, I think they wouldn't support it because the part of Fox, majority of Fox News didn't show it. And well, so the, the, well, people, the people who um, could have been educated, I think back to um, Professor Foster's point, it was that it was an educational experience for all of us. And well, let's
1: not forget the fact yeah. that the optics of the January 6th committee, in terms of its uh, almost exclusive Democratic makeup, was purposeful on the part of the Republicans. Very much so. They opted not to participate they were invited to participate and opted not to because they pre- they concluded prior to the committee meeting that it was a witch hunt i or thought that the republicans
3: nominated on I, the committee that i thought republicans nominated people, people for the committee that was their
1: very purposeful
3: choice i thought the republicans nominated people for the committee they're now complaining about And the speaker wouldn't accept them i thought she rejected their choices
0: not at first well Mm -hmm. pelosi invited republicans to recommend up to five picks for the select committee and gop leader kevin mccarthy chose representative jim banks of indiana jim jordan of ohio rodney davis of illinois Mm -hmm. troy neils of texas and kelly armstrong of north dakota but pelosi objected to the selection of banks and jordan because she said that this was unprecedented. One of Trump's central allies, they were, you know, one of Trump's central allies in overturning the election was, you know, Congressman Jordan. Um, And so the decision, uh, Pelosi acknowledged, was unprecedented and that led McCarthy to withdraw his other choices in protest, ultimately allowing the Democrats to have complete, you know, unity and and, and secrecy as they were, you know, not just having public hearings, but also all of the depositions and other things that they, you know, that, that occurred Uh, that wasn't in view of the public and and they were able to, you know, be more of one mind um, had, you know, in compared to what could have been if McCarthy did not withdraw his choices.
3: How unprecedented was that? Do you think? I mean, it seems like historically the each party leader got to select people to be on one of these types of committees. And so I've never seen in my lifetime, and I know I'm 62 years old or 61. Mm -hmm. I've never seen, the party in charge reject the minority party's choices. I've never seen that.
4: Uh, Well, I think we've never seen a president, as um, was stated, never um, have a peaceful transfer of power in the first place. So I think that's led to the whole thing. Uh, We've never seen people who were actually scared for their lives, um, including the minority leader himself, who spoke uh, in support of the fact that Trump had caused this on that same day, then turn around when he visits Mar-a-Lago, switch his whole support, and then changes his whole part. So we haven't seen that either. And so we haven't seen um, several things that have happened that, that led to this. So there's many things that we haven't seen. And I was a kid watching Nixon myself. So therefore, we haven't seen that too. So. Let's not just jump all over um, the leadership there when from the both sides, we haven't seen how many times have we, we've been alive where the city president didn't go to the inauguration with the other president, I've never seen that. And oh, so agree. therefore um, we've had to have Vice President Pence to sit in there. So when we look at this whole process between those days of January 1st, really started from Georgia, when you asked for 11,000 votes to be found from that, uh, all these other times, um, really from um, the election, all the way through January the 20th, somewhere in there. We haven't seen that. And that, that was some 60 days of our country that are still being dissected, and it's going to take years for people to be able to understand that. And so I watch Fox News, I watch MS, MSNBC, and I tell my students at my universities where I teach at to do both. But we, we haven't seen all of this. So it's not just so clear with A versus B equals C. It's well different. and I, I
3: agree with that and i always like to you know i always always think that when you hear one extreme and you hear the other extreme the truth is somewhere in the in the middle it's never the two extremes i mean i had a doctor tell me recently on what you watch on the news is the two extremes and we as we as a society live in the middle and i thought that was a really good point mm-hmm. um and so i don't i don't know i think a lot of what we hear you have to discount but uh you Uh, there was a lot of things going on and there were were a lot of arguments that were made. Uh, If you just take a step back, there were arguments made by President Trump and his allies that have since been proven to be true where courts have ruled that the way it was done was done incorrectly in various states, more than one state across the country. And so his arguments actually ultimately won the day uh, in certain jurisdictions but they had already certified the election. Now, I'm not saying it would have changed. I'm not validating what happened. I'm not, I mean, but I don't think you can say January, the January 6th committee is the re- reason why the election that we just had, uh, had the result it had. We, we, I, we're going to be studying that election for a while. <laughs> I don't think it was the January 6th. I had it, I think it more had to do with student loans and and the, the uh, Supreme Court's decision on abortion, maybe.
0: So I do want to, um, if there are no other thoughts, I do want to, you know, pivot a little bit here. Um, you know, it was mentioned, Professor Foster mentioned DeSantis, and the, the rivalry between the two men, Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, has been ramping up in recent weeks, um, and has just gotten even more heated um, since uh, the election took place. Um, Florida governor, of course, uh, Ron DeSantis, edged out former President Donald Trump in a new Wall Street Journal poll, primary voters that pits the two Republicans against each other as top contenders for the GOP nomination in 2024 52 percent 52 percent of likely GOP voters in the poll said that they preferred Ron DeSantis compared to 38 percent who favored Trump in the hypothetical primary race for the Republican nomination the poll also demonstrated DeSantis's popularity uh, among likely primary voters with 86 percent saying they viewed the Florida governor favorably Trump's favor uh, favorability rating, however, came in at 74%. Um, The rivalry between these two has been widely expected to uh, get even worse as we get closer to the 2024 election calendar um, and has been building in recent months. Trump wielded the nickname Ron DeSanctimonious recently for the Florida governor, taking credit for his success, and and he belittled him as average. Um, Trump announced his bid for president, of course, so he's officially a candidate. Um, What does it say you know, that someone who's not actively look, seeking the presidency is polling so much better than someone who was a former president and now running again. I think the last time something like this happened was, you got to go back to 1892 with Gilbert Cleveland and Benjamin Harrison, uh, for, you know, a, a former incumbent president running for the position again. Uh, I mean, what does it say that Ron DeSantis is, I guess, the flavor of the month now? I'm wondering if that's going to last into you know, the next election cycle. What do you all think?
3: Trump and DeSantis are very much similar. I look look at DeSantis as very much Trump-like, but a much uh, smarter politician. Uh, And and he knows, I mean, some of the things that people liked about Trump was that he wasn't a politician. But now it's been so long, you can't really say he's not. He's kind of a hothead. Uh, DeSantis makes a lot of the Trump-like decisions, but he's a much cooler head. I kind of look at Trump now, and I kind of wonder if he might be a little bit like Theodore Roosevelt. You know, one term president that was polarizing, had a difficult time getting uh, uh, reelected and split his party. Uh, My concern about Trump is he has a very loyal following. If there's a lot of people running, it only needs he only needs 30 percent of each primary to uh, get the to get the uh, nomination. So DeSantos, I think you're this is what I predict. The left is not going to attack Trump for the next six months because they'd rather have him as the as the candidate, and so they're going to be attacking DeSantis and says he's worse than Trump because they don't want DeSantis to be the to the be the nominee.
4: I think the left was going to do exactly what you said. They're going to leave Trump alone, and that because Trump really you can leave Trump alone most of times because he takes care of himself, and by creating his own news that can hurt him. I also think that I'm not sure where DeSantis is going to roll. I consider him more of a Scott Walker out of um, Wisconsin, that the name was hot and heavy and everybody thought Scott Walker was going to be the, the new savior for the Republican Party. And then all of a sudden he fills it out because of the fact that the way Florida politics is done down there and, the, and then the person they put up, Charlie Crist, and the, how they ran in Florida, to, for him to go on a national level, I think he's too far to the right. Um and you put, that's almost putting up AOC on the Democrat side that's too far to the left. And so I, I really think that the centrist is gonna be able to pull this thing through and whether or not we really care for centrist, I think that's the reason why um, President Biden is going to look, he's gonna look much stronger even though they say that he's older, well Trump's gonna be older, everybody's gonna be older in, in those years and so therefore, this election really puts the Trump team behind and the Biden team is stronger from that standpoint.
3: I think Biden's the same way. He only needs 30% to get the nomination. So his, he doesn't have strong support, but he has a core 30%. And if they move uh, South Carolina to the first primary, he's he's a lock. And
4: he's a lock.
3: So, um, he's a lock. Uh, and so if they move it, that's the reason
4: why they're moving it. Well, I think I think it's more than 30 percent, given I think what's going to happen is this infrastructure bill that's now going to see the results coming in in January. Um, That was one of the biggest challenges. Most of the um, agreement that happened with it, the uh, benefits will start January 1. And so now you're going to have a whole year and a half, basically, before the um, November election of 2024 with people to benefit from that of the infrastructure bill that's going to be really beneficial for people starting with their medicare and everything else and so when people see the benefits i think it's he's going to have a lot more than um 30 percent yeah i do
1: agree that i i'm a um progressive libertarian that votes democratic and mm-hmm. i really 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 want Donald Trump to get the Republican nomination. <laughs> um, I think he'd be a great candidate. Um, I, go, 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 not. But seriously, uh, it's it's the danger of building a cult um, because that 30% base that he has is going nowhere. And uh, as, as you say, if there are more than two other candidate, two other candidates or more, uh, Trump's base will give him the nomination and Mike Pence and Tom Cotton, along with DeSantis, have the fire in the belly. So they all have been positioning themselves to be um, the inheritors of the Trump uh, uh, base. So um, I expect them to run, Um, but I expect Trump to be successful. DeSantis is a very good politician, at least uh, in terms of Florida politics. I, I'm interested to see, um, and this this is very shallow of me, but I'm, I'm interested to see how it will play out nationally, um, just because of the tone of his voice. Um, uh, DeSantis is Trump light, and I do believe that there are conservatives and moderates in the middle of both. The Democratic and the Republican Party, who would like another alternative? I mean, we have we have kind of timed out. We've got Joe Biden, who's who's 80 years old. You've got Donald Trump, who's I think 76 years old, and both parties have weak benches. So um, uh, it looks as though, um, if I were betting today, that Joe Biden will be reelected by default.
3: I can see that. It's way too early for that. I I think it's way too early. I think that uh, I would have thought (laughs) I was predicting that November would be the first election where identity politics was overcome by public safety. And I think I was wrong. I think uh, identity politics won one more election. Uh, I thought uh, public safety would overcome that. Uh, It did not. Uh, It eventually will. We, I think that our crime uh, situation is cyclical. It's we've, kind of going through the same situation we went through in the 60s and we're now seeing it again now. And so it's it's swinging much harder because, you know, right now we don't have incremental steps at the legislature. We're electing the extremes of both parties. We don't have the middle being elected anywhere. And I think Texas is a great example. Texas could be won by the Democrats. Texas has always been a conservative state, even when it was controlled by Democrats. But the problem is to raise enough money to run statewide in texas you have to say the right things to get the right money from the right people and that requires you to move too far to the left to be able to be elected statewide in texas and so i think that is a problem we have across the country in the in the uh, progressive parts of the state or in part of the country the people on the right have to go too far to the right to raise enough money. And now they've just placed themselves out of the, of the election. I think we have that. We're electing extremes, we need to come to the middle. And I don't see that happening in this climate.
2: So I'm interested in, on the psychological level, how do we move to those extremes? And so what I see is when we have a broader base of people who are allowed to live their lives as they please, you know, if we look at a more libertarian type situation, who is at the top? Well, you might like some more than the other, but it doesn't matter that much. But as over the last few decades, more and more power is coming from the top. Now, this really matters because there's a huge philosophic split between progressives and conservatives and libertarians. But who's ever at the top gets to change your life all the way down. So as a result, I know if I look at my conservative friends, they feel like there's a noose being slowly tightened around their neck. If I look at my progressive friends, they feel that this concentration of power that we've created is is going to put in some sort of authoritarian fascist right wing. And they are terrified. I mean, for me, I look at it and say, (laughs) you're terrified of what? But they are genuinely terrified to their core as are the conservatives. So by creating this apex of power up here, I think
4: that is driving the split. I think I can see where your apex is. Also, I look at the issue of it not coming from the top. I think it's coming from the bottom for the fact that the states, um, being a local and a community politician myself, it's the states (laughs) that have set up the gerrymandering. It's the states that have set up this. And so therefore, when you look at it, it's it's down to the fact that because New York had their squabble between the uh, left AOC and, and then and then the other gentleman that was there that was over the Congress, because New York set it up. Really, that's one of the reasons why we lost the House, because Texas is going to go this way with their gerrymandering. California matches that. And then Florida is <laughs> going to go another way. We need New York to match their gerrymandering. And then the rest of the state battles. That's how I look at it. When New York didn't set up theirs because of all the legal things and dealing with chroma and all that. We lost it. So it's it's the local battle that's happened. Um, Tip O'Neill said all politics is local. And so, therefore, it mm-hmm. is when we look at the, how our houses are run, our state senators are run, our state legislatures, our secretary of states—all of these battles are there. And right, so you look
2: at school boards. Oh my it's, gosh! It's, and so you we know the, that,
4: the, even though you may have in Indiana, we have a supermajority Republican in-house, supermajority Republican Senate, Republican that my um, county went Republican for the first time. It's almost like, what do we Democrats do? And so it's that way. And, and having to have a message that is more of a moderate message, it works. I, you may get elected here, but you won't be respected on the East Coast and in D.C. And so moderates from the Indiana get wiped out. So it's a very interesting thing from the bottom all the way up to when you see how it's stacked with the gerrymandering that has happened throughout here. So when a New York doesn't match the um, gerrymandering is going on in Texas, because even Texas changed how they did with all of their, um, their growth instead of it. In, it was done in more Hispanic populations there. But the, even though the growth that was in a lot of the Hispanic populations, there was no more Hispanic people elected to Congress. Well, but Hispanics
3: are moving towards the Republicans. That's the problem is, uh, you know, in Texas. I mean, we didn't have we only had one. I don't think we had any um, incumbent defeated. I think the two races that changed were open seats. So, I mean, I don't think you had a single uh, incumbent defeated in the state legislature. So we argue about all these changes and gerrymandering, but it didn't look like it impacted the election.
4: Because people, uh, honestly, back to the psychological effect, I'm a licensed clinical therapist myself. The psychological effect is this. How, why should I challenge you when I look at this, the way this thing has been set up? And it's 60-40 automatically if i um, already going to go Republican or 60-40 going to go to Democrat. So why should I raise all this money? You spend all my energy, get everything else. And that's the, that's the fear that I have of politics right now is that when people look at the way this thing has been gerrymandered, and then nobody's going to challenge that, then people are like, well, if nobody challenges, we won. No, it's a psychological effect that the gerrymandering presents in the first place that defeats the people before an election ballot even happens.
2: And the gerrymandering is there because that really determines the power differential, which really determines how it impacts your life. So as a result, people are feeling desperate on the left and the right and they will do whatever they can to maintain their power, including and I think gerrymandering is just a symptom of that.
3: Well, so- look at the last couple of elections. I mean, Biden was elected, he was going to be the moderate, he was going to return everything to normal. And I, I don't I don't know how y'all would uh, how, what y'all's conclusion is, but my conclusion is that's not how the, how he's led. He's I think he's made a deal with his supporters that he's led actually a a left agenda instead of a moderate agenda. I think, and we've seen that, you know, uh, George Bush, this number two, he ran as a new conservative, a moderate. So everybody wants a moderate elected, but moderates can't win. And especially today, they can say they're a moderate, but once they're elected, they can't rule as, or they govern as a moderate.
1: Well, I, I think, I think that moderates can and do win. I think, um, Joe Biden is an example of that. What he is, is he's very progressive domestically. But in terms of uh, uh, foreign policy, he's been more hawkish
2: um, than a liberal would normally be. Explain to me why liberals have now become the hawks and the conservatives have now. There's been a huge shift. Can you? And I didn't understand it. Maybe you can explain that. It's a cycle, actually,
1: because the liberals, if you go back to, um, uh, uh, I can't think of his name, from the state of Washington, former senator in the 1960s. um, uh, But Lyndon Johnson, Lyndon Johnson was guns and butter. Um, Being a liberal up until the late 1970s meant being Uh, for both strong uh, domestic spending and being hawkish political, uh, excuse me, on foreign policy. That that has changed in terms of uh, uh, now Democrats are kind of returning to that. But I think they're returning to that more because it's rational. Um, uh, You can't get elected uh, in America if you're seen as being weak. Weak towards communism or weak towards terrorism. You, you pick it, whatever, whatever is out of fashion at, at the particular time. But um, uh, the Democrats seem to have found that middle ground where they can be trusted to take care of the needs of the American people. You notice that Obamacare was not repealed during the Trump administration. Um, So apparently it wasn't repealed because the American people like it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's been the most progressive policy put in place since Social Security. Uh, But (laughs) President Obama was, um, I think, to the dissatisfaction of many Americans, weaker on foreign policy. Mm A lot of the things, a lot of the problems that we see in the world now uh, was because we had such a weak response to uh, the Russian invasion of Crimea. Uh, We're we're basically paying for that now. So I think the American people see that we still have to be basically the police of the world in order for there to be stability in
4: this world. Well, you see, tomorrow the president of Ukraine is coming to... United States. And so therefore, and maybe even speak of the joint session of Congress. And so I agree with you in terms of the hawkish nature of um, the um, president from that standpoint. When it comes down to the um, domestic policy, uh, even though people want to say that President Biden is far to the left and Johnson, there's no way, because he he didn't have the Senate to even become a Johnson or uh, anybody from the Roosevelt area. If he tried to do anything, voters' rights, um, his first bill that he tried to do in terms of his infrastructure, so many things were changed because of Senator Cinema and um, Joe Manchin. So when, you, when you're living at 50, uh, 48 senators and two that are coming from very conservative areas and independents and all those kind of things, it's impossible for him to be a um, Lyndon Johnson, Johnson had some, uh, what, almost 60-plus senators of his choosing, and so did Roosevelt. So when people say that, that he's liberal, I'm like, put him in the perspective of the other presidents in the Senate. It's impossible from the numbers standpoint for him even to be that way. And so, therefore, he's had to back off and everything else just given the nature of the Senate. And even the House was, was under Nancy Pelosi, who they say is far to the right. Well, she couldn't be all that because of the closeness of the Senate and the closest of the House. And so that's more of a political talking point that he's so far to the left. That's not true based on the fact of the way the numbers are in Congress and the Senate.
3: Well, if you ask, if the question is, why are liberals hawks? I think the answer to that is it's a step back in time. You know, back when President Bush, the second and the first were president, one of the ways you mitigated the other party was to give them a half of what they wanted. Uh, But we're now at a point where we don't have the money to do that. Uh, And so I think by being hawks, that's kind of a step back into that type of political nature. But I would also say I don't know if I agree that they're hawks. The Democrats or Biden was not a hawk on Afghanistan. And I think he had no choice on uh, on. On uh, this this most recent uh, military thing, because he's got to support them because th- they didn't support the Crimea, and if they don't, then then the Russia it looks like at the time they were just going to steamroll their way and take over their oil fields, which I think that was the whole purpose of this: take over their the riches of their country uh, and uh, for themselves. And I th- so I think that uh, I don't believe that the Democrats are hawks. I think they have no choice because of what's going on uh, and and the corner they've painted themselves into for the last couple of years.
1: Well, I, 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 I disagree. The, sure. the, the fact that NATO is growing is hawkish. That's why Putin has lost his ever-loving mind because he sees the West as encroaching on his de facto territory um, and, and the support of, of would-be NATO countries that have become NATO countries is hawkish. It, again, I don't think that um, they're war but they, are, they see that our value in the world is as the police of the world. And that's why people still um, are, are allied with us, because we provide stability in this world. Um, we do, we provide political stability, military military stability, uh, and safety for the status quo. So um, again, I think it's it's not an ideological hawkishness. I think it's a rational hawkish, hawkishness.
0: And going back to the discussion about the elections, I, I think elections. You know, the trend constantly, especially in recent years, is. Who who has the best optimistic plan for the next four years, or the next two years in terms of congressional elections? I think this year, you know, going back to May, you know, we're at the end of the year now. Now we can take a, a balcony perspective of the year. You know, anyone who was you know safely betting would say, I'm voting. I'm betting on the Republicans taking uh, the House representatives. I'm betting on them taking the Senate. I think there's a reason beyond Trump that for the first time since 1934, the incumbent president has not lost a single Senator from his party. I think that yes, there was inflation. Yes, there was angst about the Afghanistan withdrawal. Yes, there was the uh, border crisis and, you know, anything else that could potentially derail democratic chances for legislative victory or political victory. But I think at the end of the day, folks thought, okay, well, what is your plan? And I think going forward in 2024, whoever has the solid plan, I mean, when you go back to the policies uh, Dr. Davis pointed to earlier, the Inflation Reduction Act, um, you're looking at 41% approval, according to the hill.com, um, at approval for that uh, legislative piece of legislation. Go back a year ago, the uh, infra- infrastructure bill, outgoing Senator Rob Portman uh, played a, a significant role in getting that done, Republican, Bush Republican, actually. Um, you know, uh, so far, it seems as if the policies in which the administration has moved seems to be in alignment with the progress the American people have, have, have expected to see. And, of course, you know, we did have a, a, a time when the Democrats were trying to push a bill Back Better bill through that failed of, uh, uh, and ultimately resulted in the skinny version that we have, the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, and still, you don't see huge uh, opposition to that kind of legislation so I think going forward if the Republicans were you know going to you know learn from I think this 2022 midterm it is you can't just complain about certain policies you've got to actually propose uh, uh, things that you're going to do to address it um sure. I, and I think
4: go ahead I think one of the things that people didn't really take into consideration there is inflation however people are getting paid more I, when I fly into Huntsville, Alabama, I have to rent a, a car, it's $500 to rent a car for the week when I used to have to pay 100 or something. dollars. But more people are getting paid more. People can leave a $40,000 job at a school and go work at Macy's or Taco Bell and these other places and get 15 to $18 an hour after COVID, which was in, just a couple of years ago, you'd be getting um, minimum wage for those same positions. And so there was a frustration that people had, but not a pure anger because they are getting paid more at a lot of the service jobs that they were not normally be getting paid just in a couple of years ago. Again, life pre-COVID and after COVID changed many of the jobs of a lot of the fast food, regular retail stores that you can get a, a nice paying living now in many ways. So people were upset, but not as upset. The Republicans, if they were going to change Roe versus Wade, they should have made that announcement in October but they made it in June uh, back then. So people had time to organize. The January 6th committee educated people. There was a lot of factors going in. And then the quality of the candidates. The Democrats had some great candidates out there. And so I think that really helped. And so you, um, when you put all these different things in there, and then how do you have people saying that they don't believe that the last election was, was valid and the last election was this and the last election was that when they're running for election themselves? OK, so th- it, they were hypocritical and they're on the, If you if you don't believe in the last election, how can you be running when it's the same election? And so it created all of that going on with the Trump factor. And so there was a there was a, a perfect storm that was rolling around that happened to turn more blue than red because it had not happened. So when you put all those factors in it. I wasn't shocked that it was going to go that way from that standpoint. So, yes, it's not only who has the plan, but again, the rep- uh, that Supreme Court. Was playing too much political ball this year, then they shouldn't have been playing like that. And, and then when Clarence Thomas came up, one more, not only the thing, when he said, Oh, yeah, we're coming after the LGBT next. Okay, when he put that in there, I was like, For anybody on the Democratic mm-hmm. progressive side, I'm like, keep on talking, Justice Thomas, keep on talking. You're helping us. And that, because prior to May, it was going to be a red season. When he kept talking, all of those factors just bored right into it and that's, it turned this country from a red to a real purple. And that's really where we are. Well, I think yeah, I agree I with a lot say, of
1: one- just politically speaking, the Democrats best friends, politically, not policy. The Democrats best friends are Donald Trump and the Supreme Court of the United States. That is correct. Now, by the time this court adjourns this coming June, and the reason they announced uh, the Dobbs decision in June is that it's, that's the end of their term. So at the end of this term, in June, they'll announce the end of affirmative action. And again, that will stir up the Democratic base. Um, And, uh, you know, so between Donald Trump and the Supreme Court being ideologues, the Democrats, all the Democrats have to do is to look mildly sane in order to get the, the independent vote. 100%. You're doing a good job with that with Joe Biden. Joe Biden might be a, a lot of things. And I, 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 This is me with, with my mental health e- expertise. But all you have to do to be elected by uh, anyone who's in a swing state is to look mildly sane. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you I could be Dr. Oz. mm mm-hmm. You know, I
3: respectfully disagree with that because I think the elections are made of coalitions. And I think Dr. Davis, and I probably agree on a lot, probably say it in just very similar ways, but just a little bit different verbiage. But I I think there's a coalition. And I think if you change a part of the coalition, I mean, this election was really a 49, uh, a 51-49 election. And so if you change one part of the coalition, you change the uh, student loan thing right before the election, it would have been a different result. You change the Roe versus way, just delay it till after the election, it's a different result. You change, um, uh, I mean, we, we didn't have a problems versus solution election. We had a one side saying there's all these problems, there's crime, there's inflation. And then we have the other side at the last couple of weeks saying we don't have a crime problem, they're lying to you. Uh, we don't have an inflation problem, you're making more money. I mean, so we really had a, their line, we're telling the truth at the very end, but I still think it's just, it's any election is a coalition, people vote for different reasons, mm. and what you vote for, what I vote for are different things. And we may end up voting for the same candidate, but it doesn't change. I mean, we had a governor's election that was really turned, I think, on the school board and on the school issues where, where you know, the, the perception was parents were being excluded. And you're going to see that turning elections. And, I, and really, you could look at that and say, these are peripheral issues. But the impact of that is from a 51 percent who is far left to a 49 who's far right elections have substantial consequences these days.
1: Yeah, we don't disagree. Uh, the coalition was shifted to the Democrats by the Supreme Court and Donald Trump. That, that's, a, that's all I'm saying. And the, I believe that. The convincibles saw the Democrats as being less I- ideological and more reliably sane. And that's what shifted them at the the, the independents at the margins to vote Democratic. I mean, hmm. if you just look at, at at Georgia, the Republican governor was reelected. Yeah. But Herschel Walker lost in in the in the runoff by, you know, a couple hundred thousand votes. But but isn't the lesson for Herschel
3: Walker is that uh, the Democrats wanted him to be the candidate, and then attacked him once he was the candidate.
4: No, the Democrats want him to be at all. That was strictly Trump. Trump picked him back in USFL yeah. when out of Georgia in 1982 when he picked him, and he became a Georgia man and a Trump fan before um, Obama was even thinking. He was still in before he was in law school, so that was strictly a Trump pick. I mean, I can't even put that on the Democrats. What happened like, in the Supreme Court?
1: There are friends. As,
4: as I think the thing in Georgia too, <laughs> for, for the fact is, the governor and the secretary of state played middle ball. Here they went, um, mm-hmm. especially the secretary of state went to the January 6th committee. They went up there and mm-hmm. testified at the January 6th committee about how he stood up to the president. Okay. And when he did that, and he gave a beautiful testimony about his whole presentation and everything. When he sat there and talked about how no matter what, he was going to be fair to the law, no matter who was calling him, whether Democrat, Republican, the man did his job. And when a person does their job, black or white, gay or straight, lesbian or whatever, Democrat, Republican, people respected that in the face of Trump, and they reelected him because he did his job. Okay. That was not even partisan. He did it. He sat there and he's a Republican, but he went up there and said why he was not for Trump and you're not going to get me to get 11,000 votes. I don't do that for nobody. I can respect that big time. So so,
0: the last few minutes of the show, uh, gentlemen, uh, because we are wrapping up, I do want to talk about the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York uh, announcing last week that uh, Sam Bankman-Fried has been arrested, the former crypto exchange executive. Uh, and that was, of course, at the uh, request of U.S. federal prosecutors. Um, the SEC said that Bankman-Fried orchestrated a year's a year's long fraud to conceal from investors the misuse of F.T.X. consumer. Uh, I'm sorry, F.T.X. customer money. Um, what are your uh, takes about the the, the recent um, charges of, of Mr. Bankman-Fried? And is there any precedent for going back to Bernie Madoff um, or any any others who have? been the target of the sec and uh, prosecutor's office
2: what i'm fascinated with is the repeated ability of really smart people to be conned i am fascinated with how that happens and i know that on a smaller level If I have a really big desire for something, I want something, it's going to make my life. A con artist can come along and fashion a key to exactly fit my needs because he doesn't or they don't have to deliver, right? They can fashion their promises. And I go, oh, and all of a sudden, my thinking brain is no longer intact. When we get to those higher levels, I've always assumed these really smart guys, they're not going to be susceptible to a con. <laughs> i'm wrong
4: <laughs> i like that you know it's enron part two um same thing happened there and uh, in the multitude of councils, you have to have wisdom and you have to study these folk and that's the thing the um, person that's coming to deal with him um is john jay um who Ray, who's going to be coming in, and he's the one that helped clean up um, Enron, brought a lot of monies back. And he also was a part of Fruit of the Loom back in the day, helped clean those things up. And so it's the people they're putting in place now to work, I think, are experts to ha- specialize in cleaning up people who have con people. And so he helped get a lot of people's back. About 50% of the money came back. 52% of the money came back with Enron. So now hopefully the people can get some of their money back with this professor that's come in to help out with this attorney who's come in there now. So it's just I agree with you. A lot of people think that just because you're high and mighty and wealthy, you're not going to get conned. I mean, that's the best people to con are the wealthy. (laughs) 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 I mean, you con the poor. What what are you going to get? Okay, you got to call the wealthy to be able to get a profit out of it, because when you call the person on the street, really, you get a quarter. You call the person who is wealthy, you get a couple of million. You know, I I
3: grew up very poor and I worked my way through school, law school. And, you know, when I was a young attorney, they had opened up a new uh, gambling boat in Louisiana, which was an hour two hours away. And so I went one night and so I turned one hundred dollars into four hundred dollars. And so I was so proud of myself the next Couple, the next weekend I went and I turned $400 into a hundred dollars and I never went back
0: because my response
3: was i I worked too hard for my money. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we just haven't learned those lessons in this instant gratification world that we live in. It's just, we got to have it right now. And we, we need to remember some of those good old sayings from my grandparents. If it just sounds too good, you know what? It's too good. And if you work really hard for your money, then you need to work really, be really uh, stingy with your money. And I I like to tell people, I want to help people, but I want to make sure that I can help myself so I can help as many people as I can. But if you're doing stuff like that, then, you know, the snake oil salesman will come in and they will take advantage. And I, you know, I found out very early in, in the practice of law, you know, if if you will allow people to take advantage of you, they will take advantage of you and nobody will stop it. So you got to stop it yourself.
1: That's right. what's, what's no This was a little random, but I did finally remember the name of the, my, the Democratic Hawks. Uh, Henry Scoop Jackson and Sam Nunn were mm-hmm. pretty prominent Democratic Hawks uh, back in the day. But on, on the issue of Bangman uh, Freed, um, and this is the libertarian in me. I I really don't want a lot of regulation around this, but uh, when you don't have regulation, people have to be willing to take their losses. And that is something that I I think has been lost in this country. I, I still think that we have a pretty strong work ethic, but on the high end, those with money and those without, um, we're not willing to take our losses. We, we expect there to be some kind of safety net, whether it's a governmental safety net or a legal safety net. Um, people somehow don't want to be held responsible for their bad decisions. And I think that's a dangerous thing to the American ethic.
2: I'd like to put a yellow highlighter on that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Mr. recent Professor Foster, Dr. Davis, Mr. Good. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the the discussion. Um, I think, you know, the, the best times I have with this platform is when we have diverse opinions, and you know, this this episode was very much um, one of the best I think because of the fact that we had different perspectives. Yet we can speak uh, civilly with one another, and we can um, you know agree to disagree uh, in a civil manner, and we can still be able to shake hands and smile with one another at the end of the day. So I'm grateful for each okay. of you for what you brought to the table. Um, Mr. Good, I hope this is not your last time on the platform. Uh, it's a reason good to have you back. Professor Foster, of course, is a huge friend, supporter Dr. Davis. I'm thoroughly uh, grateful for each of you and the time that you spent. With that being said, I'm going to go ahead and conclude episode 89, episode 89 of the Political might podcast. Thank you all so much. Good night. Good night.
3: Good night. Thank you. All right.